Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 470 for December 15th, 2018. On today's show, singer-songwriter Gene Rowe. Remember, you can support the jazz session by becoming a member for just five bucks a month at patreon.com slash the jazz session. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the jazz session. Let's start off with a track from Gene Rowe's new album, Sisterly. I don't listen to the radio. I ain't watching any TV. I don't listen to those CDs or MP3s. I don't watch a lot of movies. I just need to have you live, live all the time. Live in front of me. Oh, I got to see you live, live all the time. Cut the power that I can't on now, honey. I got to have you laugh. I don't listen to the radio. I ain't watching any TV. I don't listen to those CDs or MP3s. I don't watch a lot of movies. I just need to have you laugh, laugh all the time. Live in front of me. Oh, I got to see you laugh, laugh all the time. Cut the power that I can't now. My guest is Gene Rowe. The new album is Sisterly, and uh, it's really fabulous. Gene, it's great to have you on the show. Oh, great to be here. So I've been a a fan of your music ever since I was first introduced to it. And when you uh, kind of contacted me to talk about this record, you know, you said, well, it's not strictly jazz, but it's certainly uh, kind of has its feet in the the waters of those tributaries and i i've kind of always felt that way about your music that both the people that you use on your records and and even just the the kind of rhythmic inventiveness um the fact that the songs have often kind of more complex structures than we might be used to all of that feels like it's kind of informed by improvised music if not strictly you know improvised music itself is that a fair statement definitely definitely yeah you know i don't um i I don't make a lot of um, prejudgments for myself before I sit down to write. And so all of that music that's flowed through my life in um, all these years <laughs> uh, comes out in the sounds that I'm creating. And, and certainly I love working with improvisers um, in, in making that music come to life. So, um, you know, everybody on this record and on my past records brings um, that particular perspective you know into into each song we're although people are hearing this after the fact we're recording this interview on the day of the 2018 uh, midterm elections and that seems at least in some way appropriate for a lot of the content on this record which is very unafraid to look at the world as it is and kind of call things out um and i i guess i just wanted to ask you about that did you this record feels like it has a through line of kind of speaking truth to the current moment and maybe a larger moment as well. But did you have that idea behind the album as a whole or did you sudden did you find, well, I've now written several songs that seem to kind of be going in this direction? How did this album kind of start to take shape? Yeah, you know, it's so fascinating to me that it feels so timely right now because a lot of this music was written before the current presidential administration. Um, And this record's been in progress for quite 
a while. And so <laughs> I guess it says two things. One, that it's always been on my mind in, in so much of my work as a writer and as a musician um, to kind of speak to the world outside of myself. Um, you know, this is not a confessional songwriter kind of record. Um and also that just the political engagement as an artist has always been important to me, no matter who is in office. Um, but then just also that, that there is, um, this, this moment that we're living in, I mean, who knows how these midterm elections will go today. Um, but definitely in the last two years, there's been such uh, a groundswell of political engagement because, the national landscape uh, looks so different um, from the, the the tone of discourse, at the very least, that we're used to, um, even in the strangest times in this country. Um, so, yeah, it is it it is kind of coincidental that it's um, coinciding with this with this political moment, the the, the this record coming out. It, there's a guy, a singer-songwriter here in town who uh, plays a lot of original music, but usually plays at some point during a set um, a cover of a pretty reworked cover of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. And he often introduces it by saying, uh, this is one of my favorite songs to sing that I wish I didn't have to sing. And I think about the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, that song is 40 years old. And much like you're just discussing, I feel like the while the times may change, there are some there are some pretty standard themes that flow throughout American history that make uh, kind of political or protest or conscious music relevant almost no matter when you perform it. You're going to be able to look around yeah. and say, well, yeah, it still relates, unfortunately. And I kind of feel like maybe that's yeah. the same for you, that even if this stuff was written you know, several years ago, the times don't change as much as we might wish they would. Mm, yeah, you're you're right. That's probably true too. I also think that you know the politics flows through our lives as individuals too. And if we're tuned in to those moments that um, that that cross our personal paths but indicate sort of a larger um, circumstance, that uh, there's something for people to connect with in any time. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. About a personal experience of a of a larger political reality, um, and I think what's going on is a great example of of exactly that. There's like a, a certain amount of specificity, and also this um, the general through line of of violence and um, and depressive power affecting people and um, and causing reactions, I guess. And this album feels very much to me like, uh, and probably this interview as well, like one that would be very different depending on who's listening or on who's having this conversation about it. Because, you know, I'm a a straight, cis, white man uh, hearing this album, and that's one thing. But a lot of the content on it, I think, speaks to experiences that are that are not mine or not primarily mine that I can be aware of, but that I'm not living through. And I, you know, I think that the title, the cover, a lot of the lyrical content kind of speaks to people other than me or speaks about stories other than mine. Um, and so I feel like to some degree I am, you know, I'm treading a little carefully or just, you know, trying to be really open to the fact that, uh, these are not necessarily my stories to tell and that I'm just, I'm coming to it as a listener, but with my own set of baggage that's different from, you know, what yours might be or anybody else who hears the record. Um, I feel like the yeah. title track is a pretty good example of that as well. Maybe if you could say sure. something about that. 
Yeah, and I'm so curious how this is hitting people like you who feel um, like at least some aspects of your identity confer a lot of privilege on you, I think is what you're saying. Absolutely. Um, And so to be able to listen to um, other kinds of stories and and also, you know, in my case, tell some other kinds of stories. You you mentioned the the title track, um, Sisterly. You know, it's a it's a story about an experience I had a number of years ago being home alone uh, while some people were fighting on the street. A man and a woman were just screaming at each other and um, and getting really physically violent. And um, this the song sort of like stops time in that moment. And I have a chance as a writer and a human being uh to to turn that moment over in my mind and ask myself why i didn't do anything um you know and there's a divergence to some degree from the reality of that situation and what actually happened in the song but i didn't call the police and part of my thinking in that moment was i don't trust the police to handle this situation with a positive outcome um, on the other hand, these people are really hurting each other. And um, and there were other people in the street who were totally ignoring it. And um, so there's a whole lot of layers going on there. A lot of um, me, after the fact, reflecting on what it means to be uh, a woman, a cis woman in the society, and learning so many ways of adopting, kind of in my own life, adopting the the coercive patriarchal behaviors of men around me in order to have a fighting chance. Um, and also the kind of crazy intersections of class and race and gentrification in the neighborhood where I live in Brooklyn, um, you know, where, um, uh, I'm, I'm a white person and the people on the street in this circumstance are people of color. And there's just so much, um, distrust and I mean generation centuries of history behind so many interactions that um you know put me in a place of paralysis in that moment that I was not proud of um so to be able to pick that apart and write a song called sisterly that's speaking about a lot of this um and particularly to a white perspective where I know a lot of my my audience is often uh white people um and yeah people like yourself maybe um to bring those topics into the conversation in a way that i hope is feels authentic it certainly feels authentic to me um it seems important if we're going to move this conversation forward and also to encounter it in the context of music and art and entertainment as it were um (laughs) Sometimes I feel like I'm blindsiding people when I get on stage and bring these stories into the picture because they're not always what people expect in their night out. Um, but I think it's it's important to consider. And, um, well, clearly, I think that it's that's why I was drawn to write about, um, about some of these stories. Home alone, the first one night, the beginning. Season for neighborhood street fights. I could have stopped it, called the police. I 
could have courageously brought my trash down to the street. Hey, oh, Ooh. I don't know what it was all about. I heard something about sex. Something about let me hear you shout from the window in a street lamp round. I see him pull her hair, he talks her and drags her down. Yeah, there's a lot to there's a lot to unpack in uh, what you just said, and uh, obviously so much that it caused me to use the word unpack, which I really hate unless you're talking about <laughs> luggage. Um, <laughs> so I might uh, I might edit that out of this and put myself in asking a better question. But anyway, there's a lot to talk about in what you just said, um, and the use of the word paralysis I think is really uh, really interesting because I think we. Um, I know I won't speak generally. I'll speak specifically. I know in in my own case, um, uh, for example, I was once in a situation um, in a work situation where I, there were th- myself and two other white coworkers, and I just happened to be standing there, and they were talking to each other, and one of them used the N word, and I was so shocked, like not about anybody who was around us, not to anyone, just used it in conversation, and I was kind of so stunned and I didn't say anything in that moment and it was a few seconds they walked away from each other and I I felt really guilty afterward uh, for not mm. having just stepped in and and said something um, and then to go to your calling the police like I, uh, I anybody who's heard this show more than once knows like I, I'm a super left-wing anarchist I don't really believe in calling the police ever but at the same time as you pointed out there are complex situations where like, which is the more harmful choice? Is it, you know, is it to call actors who you think might not actually make the situation better, or is it to allow people to harm each other that you know is actually happening in that moment? And I find, I feel like we find ourselves in those moments all the time where, where we're not sure either how to use our privilege or even just how to use our, our voices, how to use the phone, how to, you know, what is it that we're supposed to do in this situation to make it better or worse? And that sometimes mm. the kind of fear of that imperfect outcome means we don't take any action at all. And I know that happens to me, you know, with some regularity that I find, you know, I act a lot, but I also find myself in situations where I know I could or should, and I just don't know what the right thing to do is. And I, I appreciate that these songs are in some way, first of all, making me feel less alone about that. And secondly, you know, just being brave enough to say it's not always easy to figure out what we do as human beings in this world. Mm, yeah, and I think that's a lot of it, too, is, is being able to cultivate that courage, because the moments when we're called on to act don't typically announce themselves with a lot of uh, forewarning. So we're often blindsided, like in your story about your coworkers, with um, some experience we weren't prepared for, even though we know it's out there and we know how we feel and what the what what is what is right, even if we don't know exactly what the right thing to do is quickly enough to respond. And um, 
I don't know. I just want to bring a little bit of humanity to that too, and 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 recognize that you know some of the struggle around these um, questions has to do with how we are living, and it's not um, necessarily individual people's faults when these moments don't uh, work out well. We can only do our best to um, practice being more courageous in the future. You know, what would it have meant if I had, I did come outside in the middle of this fight, (laughs) actually thinking that somehow that my presence would, uh, I don't know. I don't know what I thought, but nothing changed. But what would have happened if I had been able to come out there and and, um, not be afraid of accidentally getting slugged and talk to people, you know? Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question, but it's something that I, I imagine, um, and that's that's part of what that song is about. How can we be braver? And I, I think I think we have that in us. I think people are are starting to to see that because we're seeing on a really wide scale the consequences of um, shrinking away from from our duty to just be humans with each other. from the music to remind you that you can go to patreon.com slash the jazz session that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash the jazz session for five dollars a month you get a bonus episode each month if we get to 100 subscribers there'll be three episodes of the main show each month and we're more than a quarter of the way there now which is very cool if we get to 200 subscribers the show will be weekly that's patreon.com slash the jazz session, P A T R E O N dot com slash the jazz session to become a member for just five bucks a month. Thanks to Josh Rutner, a multiple time past guest and also founder of the Respects Textet, who played the theme music to this show, for becoming the latest member. Can't take no like to some degree the the world of of music and the listeners have caught up to what you've been doing for a while now like i think of you know the end of the world show and and even um you know arise arise which is a thing probably 
uh, many folks who know you, of course, but for people who kind of know you at a, at a glance, it might be that, um, that they know you for. And I, mm-hmm. I, in some ways, I feel like the the things people are okay to, we've come to another moment. I don't think it's the first, uh, certainly not the first one of these moments by any means, but I feel like we've kind of come to another moment where suddenly the world is ready for the kind of music that you play and the things that you're <laughs> comfortable talking about. I don't know if that resonates with you at all. Or You know, it's funny. you're making me remember this thing that happened in, uh, I don't know, probably a handful of years now uh, where I got off stage after a concert and a person who had clearly been moved by the music came up to me and shook my hand and she said, wow, that was, where are you from? <laughs> and I said, well, I, I've been living in New York all my life, but I grew up in New Jersey. And she just sort of cut me off and she said, I thought you were from the 70s. <laughs> and I was like, what does that even mean? Clearly I was not alive in the 70s. And... Uh, where are you from anyway it's just That's very beautiful. funny but, but on, it, you're making me think that perhaps on some level it was pointing to uh, just a concern in subject matter that um, might have been uh, you know more on the table in that time let's say um, yeah so so I would say either either some retro tendency that I have is in vogue again <laughs> or um i don't know i don't know we're, we're gonna have to see you know this record just came out and i'm really curious um to start to know how people are how people are receiving it how people are engaging with it and um and what it really means in this in this time to people who don't live inside my head <laughs> yeah <laughs> um uh, so for folks who are listening to our conversation who uh you know who downloaded it on whatever your download service of choice is I encourage you to go uh to the jazzsession.com where you can see the cover of this album but um Gina I was hoping you might uh despite the fact that I've just done that and hopefully people are looking at it I was hoping you might describe the cover a little and talk about why you chose the cover you chose Yeah So the cover is a portrait of me which is not something I've liked to do um in the past but i had this strong sense of um an image of a person having their hair braided i was thinking a lot about hair braiding and how the act of braiding someone's hair having your hair braided it's to me it's such a um it's such a snapshot of girlhood and and childhood and this sort of girl identity that always seemed a little bit out of reach for me. I was definitely, um, I, yeah, somehow I, I, I felt always outside of those intimate moments that girls seem to have with their best friends or they would braid their hair and and make friendship bracelets and stuff together <laughs> and um i started thinking about that this sort of like iconic image of of femaleness of sisterhood right the record is called sisterly um and and then i started thinking about how hair braiding is both this act of extreme kindness and care to somebody and grooming you know like a like a gorilla or something like that but also um <laughs> you know at the same time there's this incredible control that the hair braider has over the braided of having their 
hair, their their head in in their hands. Um, and so I, I started talking about this idea with the um, the photographer I was working with, Krista Breyer, of um, two women in a portrait pose where I'm seated and I'm dressed in some kind of masculine suit jacket sort of thing. Um, and I'm having my hair braided by a woman, in this case, the photographer, who's in a really floral dress. You can just see her hands and body. And um, I, I don't know, to me, it, it was to playing with this tension of feminine roles, you know. I mean, I find in, in my life, and I think maybe some of your women listeners will identify with this in sense that there is never like a right way to be. You're too girly or you're too masculine. You're too shy or you're too bossy. You're wearing too much makeup or you're not wearing enough and uh, shaving your legs or not. There's like, there's so many ways to get it wrong. <laughs> um, and so to see these two women in this, in this act where um, the power dynamic is a little bit unclear. The person who's sitting is, is holding the viewer's gaze, but the woman who's standing might really be um, in control of her head. I don't know. There's just a lot of dramatic tension there for me. And this is definitely a, a dramatic record in terms of the um, sort of the, uh, the narrative theatricality of some of the songs and um, really dramatic production. And um, so I wanted a cover that was going to convey um, some of that to the listener before they even set their ears on it. The cover really uh, also spoke to me at a time when uh, the you know generations below me are certainly much more comfortable not having at least some of them, not having to fit into prescribed uh, gender roles. Um, mm. The, you know, when, uh, you know, having a uterus doesn't mean you're a woman, having a penis doesn't mean you're a man, being a woman doesn't mean you express in certain ways. Um, and the the cover, and actually the fact that the title is an adjective, Sister Lee, uh, mm-hmm. also seemed to kind of speak to that, like that, that yes, it's in this neighborhood, but you know what you think of as this thing might not be what the person next to you thinks of as this thing like that that we need to be more fluid in our our uses of the words and are more kind of open in our uh opinions of what identity are i don't want to read into mm-hmm. your own decisions about yeah, this but no, i think that i think that's an interesting take and and that's kind of one thing i love so much about visual imagery is that the there is an a specificity but also an abstractness about it that allows you to see something in it that um, I didn't necessarily uh, intend explicitly but is certainly there. I think some of it too though is no matter how any of us identifies or what sort of pronouns we want to use there are ways in which we are being perceived in society and expectations that come from the people that we encounter in our day-to-day that um, can be uh, really limiting if we let them. Um, and so I think a lot of us c- grow up through life contorting ourselves in ways that um, allow us to be seen and heard somehow, but don't necessarily, uh, uh, or or in ways that help us disappear if that's what we really need. Um, 
but I, I think you know one thing I hope this image speaks to and some and this idea of being sisterly or not is I, I do think that we are in a moment um, where oh, gender not just womanhood but gender as you said as a fluid concept um, is much more in people's awarenesses and also simultaneously we are replicating some of the horrible aspects of the patriarchy in which we grew up which is of course to be expected because this is this is the you know the air we breathe and the water we drink um, a system rather than particular people um, but where having power often is expressed as dominating other people holding that power over others and i don't want to be a queen because a queen is just another hierarchical um uh or or a, a society where there are queens and they're they're also subjects and that's not where i want to live so kind of thinking about this holistically what does it mean to claim power and um and also uh recognize that 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 power needs to be uplifting and and include everyone <laughs> it feels very hypothetical huh but um <laughs> but i do think it's i do think it's it's possible i i think we in order to survive we have no choice but to imagine other worlds than this uh <laughs> I, I really I really firmly believe that <laughs> we don't know each other yeah. well enough for you to realize how much you would have already heard that if we knew each other better. <laughs> but that is that is definitely one of the things at the core of, of who I am. never enough is it it's just never good enough I do my very best to keep you satisfied and nothing maybe this time I get it right maybe we can celebrate and stuff but just wanna get you and I can see that it isn't good enough Isn't good enough No It's never enough Is it? It's just never fast enough Don't dawdle now, my dear Or you will be left behind So pick it up, pick it up, prop it up, prop it up, we're playing rough. Will you will you talk about the folks who are on this record with you? It's really a a, a pretty great band, and I I want to make sure they uh, they get recognized. Yeah, of course. Well, um, I guess I'll start with Liam Robinson, who has been my creative partner for over a decade, and um, and my romantic partner now for a few years. And uh, he produced this record. He also plays keyboards and accordion, does some singing. 
Um, and so much of the amazing sound and real departure for me um, is through collaborating with, with him on, um, on the production of this. Uh, Chris Tordini is playing bass, one of my favorite people in, in the world, and I think just the very best bass player. Um, Jordan Pearlson and Chris Berry are both playing drums on the record, sometimes uh, on the same tracks. So there's a great thickness of percussion. James Ship is playing some synthesizers and percussion and kind of like any odds and ends. He's also good friends for a long time. Um, and then we have some guests. Kate Ferber is singing background vocals. Um, Pat Briner is playing saxophone on a track. That's just really very exciting to me. Um, Jefferson Hamer is adding some additional acoustic guitar. And um, Bob Lanzetti is playing guitar on, on some of the songs there, too. You mentioned this being a, a sonic departure. Can you say more about that? Sure. Yeah, Um I think in past recordings that I've done, we were looking for a really um, live sounding sound where you could really hear um, the room and the creaks and cracks. And, and well, and really what it comes down to is I was writing a lot more music that was really asking for a drum set. And once you get the drums in the picture in a big way, um, a lot of other variables follow. So a lot more amplification, um, more synthesized sound. Um, you know, the process that we used was we just kind of got got down dirty in the studio and um, and recorded um, at Seaside Lounge for, I think, five days, um, just the basic tracks. And then Liam and I lived with... Um, this sort of foundational core band sound for a few months before we went back and kind of um, started thinking about orchestrating these songs more deeply. I certainly had some ideas in mind before we went back into this, uh, or before we even began recording, rather. Um, but just hanging out with these recordings was really fun and getting to manipulate things um, and test stuff out do some demo overdubs at home it was a really different process than i had used before and and really i think made the most of um what's possible in a recording atmosphere i don't do a lot of recording as i'm writing and um i know a lot of people work that way um and so it was really fun to to do some composition um on the fly as part of the recording process yeah, and that idea of using the studio as an instrument is is still in the introduction phases, I would say, for most of the records that we talk about here on the Jazz Session, where, first of all, many of them, there's not much of a budget, and so a lot of people are, you know, we have eight hours or whatever, we're all going to go in the studio and play live and the record is done. But I, I have talked to more people recently who are starting to, you know, make sure that they can figure out how to also use the recording studio to their advantage and uh you know if they want to manipulate tracks afterwards and which obviously has been common since time immemorial in the rock and pop worlds where you know that's a much more a much more standard practice and that right so that sounds more like what you were able to do this time where you were able to to say well what's the what are the outside edges of what we could do with you know these core tracks that we have yeah, and I think you you hit the nail on the head in some ways, just in the same sense uh, that 
the writing and and uh, the music that I'm making doesn't fit neatly into um, a a genre world. Um, I think the process similarly follows that you know there's a care about the music sounding alive even if everything on it is not recorded live um, in the same space at the same time. Um, you know, it's a totally different medium from playing a live show. And I think that's really fun and cool. Um, and I didn't really know that. I liked that before <laughs> before we got into this. Um, it's just fun to be able to take some time and, and hang out at home and mess around with stuff. Is there a song or an arrangement to to put you slightly on the spot that you could point to on the record that maybe is, you know, varies the most greatly or contains something that surprises you from how you originally envisioned the song when it was just, you know, you and an instrument working it out? Mm, That's really interesting. Um, Yeah, I think, well, I think Sisterly is a good example of that. There's just so much going on and the development of that song itself um, as I wrote it took place over a long time I mean I was playing it out and then added this section in the middle it's a spoken word section and just kind of like how how in the studio do we um, make all of that stuff come alive so that's a track where there's two drummers playing for part of the song and that was not initially the idea and a lot of manipulation of my voice um, using tape saturation and uh, oh gosh, all kinds of like fun different microphones that um, you know allowed me to have like a primary vocal and then all these other kinds of whispers and like brain cloud of of language existing around it. Um, so that was really really fun. Also, the song "Secret Hours" um, has this really cool popcorny kind of vocal part in it that um, didn't exist before we started recording it and now is one of my favorite things about that uh, about that track um, that I just was, yeah came up with um, as I was improvising at home with, with the recorded track that we'd already made
you mentioned in passing there and answering that question that you had performed at least some of this music live uh, before it was in its current state. Is that the case for a lot of the songs on this record? Yeah, yeah. I think actually most of them got performed in one way or another. Um, Liam and I have a duo called Robinson and Rowe that's a more like folky duo, and we actually play the song Ashes to Ashes um, in our sets sometimes, even though it's really <laughs> more part of my band repertoire. But there's a, there's a sort of unplugged version of it that lives really nicely with the repertoire for that band. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff I developed or, yeah, a handful of it. I started developing during a residency that I was doing at Rockwood Music Hall um, on a regular basis and was just like, would bring in new songs and try them with the band at a rehearsal and then we'd get up there on stage and hack them out. And, um, you know, a lot of learning happens in that phase. You have to be brave enough to get up there and be like, this might not work. <laughs> so some stuff fell by the wayside through that process, and some stuff made it onto the record, but um, utterly transformed. Uh, so, did yeah. you retain any transformations that happened live on stage? Like, did you hear something live on stage and think, "Oh, I wouldn't have thought to put that in the song, but I like the way that worked out." <laughs> yeah, you know, one funny thing we started. We were we were. The, the last song on the record is called Nothing New. And we, for some reason, it had ended up at the end of the set list a couple times when we were trying out this new material. And we, it was sort of a joke at first, um, but I think we were all kind of into it. We We did a little, like, double ending of that song. So the song would end. And we come back again and just kind of have a little two-minute instrumental rock out, walk off, and I would introduce the band. And it worked really beautifully live. But then when we got into the studio, everybody just wanted to do the walk-off. <laughs> and so we recorded the walk-off, too. And that was a funny joke for a long time. And finally, it, it just, like, it never went away. It came down to the moment where we had to make the call about whether this goes on the record or gets cut and we just couldn't say goodbye to Bob's amazing guitar playing and the <laughs> the organ that the recording studio had, had that we were just we had a really fun time playing around with that and so it stayed it's there it's the last <laughs> thing you hear <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's so My guest on this episode has been Gene Rowe. The new album is called Sisterly. I cannot recommend it highly enough to your attention, so please go out and get yourself a copy. Probably would make a wonderful Christmas gift since it's uh, mid-December as we're speaking right now as well. Gene, thank you so much for uh, for being here. Thank you for uh, this music and for your, your previous albums, which I have, uh, I have worn out <laughs> more than one copy of and gifted more than one copy of as well. It's been great to uh, finally have you on the show, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Jason. Um, 
really appreciate talking to you. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music. I mentioned uh, Josh Rudner became the latest member of the show. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the logo. Facebook.com slash The Jazz Session if you want to interact with the show there. Twitter at Jazz Sesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H. You can also find me personally at Jason D. Crane on Twitter and Instagram. Please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. And go to patreon.com slash thejazzsession, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash thejazzsession to become a member for just five bucks a month. New episodes drop the 1st and the 15th on New Year's Day. Join me for a conversation with Chicago guitarist Bobby Broom. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody!